0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is everything you need for tips, tricks, and things to just be generally awesome. I'm your host, Amanda. And I'm your host, Claire. And this is RDH Bites. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of RDH Bites. This is your host, Amanda Mitchell. And today we have such a special guest, one of my friends for many years now, Stacey Janis. She is a faculty member and a dental hygienist, and she's had over 25 years of experience in the dental field. She's held positions as an assistant, a hygienist, a researcher, an educator, and she has such a passion, you know, for health education, promotion, and she's also a certified health education specialist. She is a member of her local component of the ADHA, and serves on the committee of San Antonio Local Component, and she's so passionate about what she does with her family, her friends, her patients, students, her community, and Stacey, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on with fellow RDHs and future RDHs. Stacey, I've been wanting to have you on our podcast for such a long time. We're super excited to have you and your expertise. Students, Stacey is so passionate about teaching community dentistry. We're really excited to have her here today. So, what are you going to be telling us about, Stacey?
1: All right. Well, today we are going to be talking about making a change through modeling healthy behavior. And so, we're basically going to touch up on two very common behavior change models and also look at them as how they apply into what we're doing daily, face-to-face, chair-side with our patients. Okay,
0: so can you give us the definition of what we're talking about today? Yes, of course. So one of the many
1: roles I see that we play as dental hygienists is We're health educators. And I think a lot of times we think of ourselves as clinicians and forget about our roles as educators. So every day as we're working with our patients, we're applying evidence-based practices to provide not just knowledge, but enhance attitudes and skills that are conducive to oral health and overall health of our patients. So change in a behavior as we probably know, is a great challenge. We face that daily and the overall success of our treatment is highly dependent on our patient's compliancy with home care. So a health model can be used to help understand a specific problem so that we can better educate, influence, and motivate our patients into those positive directions. So when I start talking about health models, this Reminds me or makes me think of this particular scene in a popular movie called The Breakup. It stars Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. And there is a scene where they're having an argument in their kitchen about doing the dishes. And Jennifer Aniston, of course, wants Vince Vaughn to help out, wants him to do the dishes. And, and one of the lines that she says that always kind of radiates with me is I want you to want to do the dishes. And Vince Vons is looking at her like, why would I want to want to do the dishes? So I, for some reason, this scene always comes into my head when I'm talking to my patients about a habit such as flossing. I want my patients to want to floss. I don't want them to just do it because Ultimately, they may do it for a little bit of time. If they don't see the value in doing it, then it's really hard to be successful in what I'm trying to teach them. So I want them to value these particular habits that I'm teaching them. And wanting somebody and creating this value system is not a simple process because we all come from very, very different backgrounds. The two models that I do want to talk about that can help us understand our patient's behavior or maybe why they fail to adapt to certain behaviors are the health belief model and the trans-theoretical model. So first of all, a theory or a model, they can take on different variations. So in a nutshell, A theory or model is basically a fundamental principle that provides a foundation for certain happenings of life. In this case, why people do some of the things they do. So I'm going to give you a few examples here in a minute that use behavior psychology to help us understand individuals so that we can better prevent disease, promote health, and create a healthier environment. So the first model is the health belief model. This is a very commonly used health behavior application. It was developed in the 1950s by the U.S. Public Health Service. And really they developed it to help understand why people fail to adapt to certain behaviors. And so it's really developed around reluctant individuals. So it's based on the understanding that a person will take a health-related action so for example, flossing, if that individual believes they are susceptible or vulnerable to a condition, say periodontal disease, or and they have to also believe that that condition has serious consequences and that a change will result in a valued outcome. They have to see the benefits of that behavior change. It also brings in important things like self-efficacy and addressing barriers to a person. And so looking at their perception of these things in a in a
0: certain behavior can predict their willingness to change. And I think, you know, Stacy for a lot of us listening, our patients are very resistant to change because it takes a lot of, you know, self-discipline and self-reflection and does this pertain to me, and it doesn't help when we have articles coming out that say flossing is not important. It absolutely is important. So we have that extra barrier to kind of jump over as healthcare educators.
1: Absolutely. It is not easy to change a habit, whether you're trying to stop a bad habit or where, whether you're trying to implement a better habit. These things take time. They don't happen overnight. And, and then, of course, you have all this information. We have all kinds of opinions and what is opinion versus fact. And so there's just a lot of things out there to kind of skew and and change people's perceptions on that. Not to mention with these models, we come with our own interpersonal values, our own intrapersonal values, and all these things kind of shape who we are. So it's not an easy thing to change and it will not happen overnight. So
0: absolutely.
1: <laughs> now, the second model that we're going to talk about a little bit is called the transtheoretical model. And this model actually addresses five stages of changes that a person might go through before they achieve a desired habit. So, this is kind of more about the readiness in a person to change their behavior versus an actual type of therapy. So, those five stages are called pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Now, this is a continuum of stages and your patient can present to you anywhere in these different stages. But... Pre-contemplation is basically a patient with no intention of taking an action. They hadn't thought about it. They don't see a value in any kind of change. And it's, it's not something they intend to do. They're happy with whatever situation they're in. A contemplation stage is now where your patient maybe intends to change in the next six months. They're thinking about it. A lot of times when someone's in pre-contemplation versus contemplation, this has to do a lot with education. This is where we kind of step in to present education materials, to talk to our patient and explain things thoroughly. So, a lot of times it's just education that can take someone from pre-contemplation to contemplation. Then it progresses to preparation. And in this particular stage, these are when your patient will start taking steps to change a behavior. They've actively started doing their own research. They've maybe purchased some dental adjunct aids. And so, they're taking these steps. But Maybe they haven't necessarily jumped in and started acting on them. Moving on to our stage four action, this is when our patient really starts making those overt changes, meaning we have now started seeing visible signs of progress. This is kind of a great stage because it's the most recognizable one in what's going on in our patients' lives. And so they tend to get a lot of recognition and it's an important stage to keep motivating our patients so that they don't relapse because they are hardly in a habit at this point, but we are seeing you know, leaps and bounds of, of progression that they're making. And then finally, we enter into the maintenance and this stage is really exactly what it sounds like. They're maintaining Their habit, they're maintaining those visible signs of health. And so this modification that they've made, whatever it may be, has lasted. They've made it for six months or more. And it's really important at this stage that they keep working to prevent any kind of relapse into the bad behavior you will see a sixth stage often presented with the trans-theoretical model. It's called the termination stage. And so it's often added. However, it's important to note that like few people will reach this stage because it's not really technically a practical goal. In the termination stage, it's basically stating that the patient is a 100% never to relapse or return to their old behavior. So As you can tell, that's not really practical to think of somebody 100% never to relapse. I look at some of my habits and don't know if I 100%
0: will do it. You know, a lot of us like think about hygienists you know, who have a lingual bar and they're like, you know what? I am done with this thing today. I do not have time to floss it today. Like, you know, <laughs> so there's never really termination for anybody in any habit. Like we can always slip up. That's just human nature. So Stacy, before we continue, I just want to ask, are there any interchangeable names that we might use for the trans theoretical model that potentially could show up on the board? Oh yes. Good question. Because
1: there is actually, and it fits very well with what we're talking about. So another name that you'll see this model addressed as is stages of change model. And so I feel like that puts it together because that's what we're talking about. We are talking about stages and in individual are in or could be in and progressing through those stages to a final outcome of maintaining a habit. So stages of change.
0: Got it. Okay, thank you so much. I know I get a lot of questions from students regarding are the stages of change and trans-theoretical model the same thing. Yes. They describe the same set of stages that a patient goes through when we ask them to make a change. Okay, Stacey, so can we break this down a little bit? And so, you know, I want to go back to the health belief model, kind of just, you know, walk it back and maybe give us an example of what, you know, how we walk through the health belief model with a patient.
1: Sure. Yes. So starting with the health belief model. So think about, what we encounter daily as a clinical dental hygienist or public health dental hygienist, these things are really important whether we're planning programs or chairside treatment, but there's a variety of personalities, a tangled web of knowledge, levels, values, habits, beliefs, or, or just what's considered to be normal behavior. And so we can use like this health belief model as like a little blueprint to help give us structure to make sense of things that happen every day in our chair. So for example, a young adult presents to our clinic for a routine visit and they're a smokeless tobacco user. So they use DIP daily. And in my experience, a lot of times there's just really not a lot of interest in quitting. I see that a lot. And so we can actually use the health belief model to maybe understand this individual a, bit, a little bit more and why they, why they wouldn't quit and then how we can plan something for them to motivate them in, in at least considering quitting and start thinking about quit quitting. So again, the health belief model looks at perceptions. And so first, Your patient, in order for them to make any kind of change, even begin thinking about making a change, they have to have a belief that they are susceptible to something undesirable, right, from doing dips. So how do we get this patient who has no interest in quitting to realize they are susceptible to serious consequences, health consequences if they continue. And so we look at our our patient and we need to personalize their risks and help heighten their susceptibility if it's very, very low. I know young adults especially have a very low susceptibility understanding of what yes. might happen to them, right? I was
0: just going <laughs> to mention that, you know, when I was 20, I was like, that's not going to happen to me. Like, I don't need to know ergonomics because I don't have any back problems. Well, guys, now I have back problems because yes. I didn't listen. You know, I didn't think that it would affect me. So especially when we're talking to younger patients or patients who've smoked for a long time, I always tell my, my tobacco-using patients, I can't make the change happen for you. You have to want this. You have to believe that it's going to benefit you. And I think that term believe is a big deal when we're talking to patients. Very big.
1: And so at this point, this model relies heavily on cues to action. And so those types of cues that we present to them are what's going to get them to thinking about their individual needs. So a lot of times with smokeless tobacco, we know it right off the bat because they've got tobacco patch keratosis occurring, right? We see that leukoplakia present on their usually lower lip. And that's just an example of how we can use a cue and use that as an opportunity to expand explain the risks to our patients. So to show them this change in the tissue and, and really kind of heighten like, you know, a risk for oral cancer. We can question them. Maybe there's a family history of oral cancer in their family. That's one way to get people thinking about situations. We can show photographs there and there's all kinds of TV commercials that can present and bring about an awareness in this, in the susceptibility that they may have. The next thing they have to believe and we have to get an understanding is their belief on the seriousness. So a lot of times you, they might see that leukoplakia, but you know, it's been there a really long time or, you know, maybe they do have a family member who's dipped all their life and nothing's ever happened to them. And so we want to get them thinking more along the lines as they are susceptible and that this is serious. So we can specify and describe consequences of the condition, specifically oral cancer, present pictures, present facts. I think a good one in this particular case for seriousness is I always like to think of, try to think of somebody maybe famous or somebody they can relate to who has had the condition or who has been through a situation with oral cancer that really kind of sets home seriousness to the, the condition. And then just getting them more thinking about the possibility that it can happen to them. They have to see the seriousness in it. And there are all kinds of biographies from people who have had oral cancer and who has survived it that we can reference for a perceived seriousness to it.
0: Sorry to interrupt. I think another great way to Apply this to patients is sharing our personal stories as dental hygienists. You know, I had a patient in her late 30s that had just a really small leukoplakia lesion and she ended up having to have a third of her mandible resected wow. because she was a smoker for 15 years but had quit. So even after you quit, you're still at that high risk, you know, and I think that's a big thing to mention as we're educating our patients and to think about y'all when you're taking the board. Perceived seriousness is a big deal to educate your patients about.
1: Definitely. Absolutely. I I think I can't stress enough about our oral cancer screenings and to make sure that our patients are aware that we're doing them and that it's serious and we take it seriously. So once they see a susceptibility and a seriousness to it, then presenting a benefit, right? So we want, everybody wants to know, how is this going to benefit me? I like dipping or, you know, they look at what's benefiting them in the short term. Now we have to kind of change that and how it's going to benefit them in actually quitting. So basically just starting with an advice action and how that's going to reduce the risk. So I think of benefits of quitting smokeless tobacco as Better oral health, obviously, but also appearance. We can look at it as a, at a financial standpoint as far as saving money, reducing the developing of oral cancers and what all entails to that, and just better all, overall health to their body. So uh, they have to feel like it's going to benefit them in some way. So we really want to get a good idea of what's important to them in changing. Maybe it is breath maybe it's appearance, maybe it's financial, and then we can really work that in as a benefit. With the kind of the last thing we always have to take into account with the health belief model are the barriers and self-efficacy play a huge role, right? So we first need to identify and reduce barriers and provide guidance with this. I know one huge barrier with any kind of tobacco use is addiction. And so you hear a lot of withdrawal. This It's too difficult to get through. Withdrawal kind of takes into account barriers and self-efficacy. I can't do it. I can't do it. And addiction is very complicated. That is a whole class in itself, right? But what we can do chair side is counseling and maybe some medications might be necessary to help a patient through withdrawal. So, you know, ADHA has their ask, advise, refer program to have some information to give them on this. And then of course, following up with our patient regularly with phone calls of encouragement, we can also sit and be an accountability partner for them just happen to have to be once every six months, but we can also make a random phone call every now and then, see how they're doing, and, and and kind of be that accountability partner. I know I'm so much better at things when I do have somebody keeping me accountable for it.
0: Yes, me too. And another point here is where you work. There will be some sort of resource available for people with addictions, whether it's tobacco or illicit drugs or alcohol, know what those local resources are so that your patient feels a part of a community rather than you're singling them out to try to, you know, help help hold them accountable. Let them know other people are also in their situation so that they can see how to get through it and have someone to talk to that is in a similar situation. Right. Maintaining empathy for them through the whole
1: time without judgment is just really, really important. So that would be kind of an example of how we can apply the health belief model.
0: Well, Stacey, thank you so much for covering that health belief model. And that is the end of part one for our change models. Next week, Stacey will be back to give us the trans theoretical model and some tips and tricks on how to recognize the differences. Thank you guys so much for listening today and we'll see you next time. Hey everybody, this is your co-host Amanda with a quick announcement. Have you looked at our VIP package yet? This has everything you need to help pass your national board exam. Whether you live in the United States, Canada, or really anywhere, our VIP package has something for everybody. We have recorded lectures, live lectures, curated and calibrated content made just for you to help you pass. Visit us today at studentrdh.com to sign up and for more information. See you next time.